The following is a President's Chapel by Professor Joel Kim, President of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this chapel message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, and we're going to end at Isaiah 53, verse 12. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 and following. Hear now the word of the Lord. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he has no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows." Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So for the reading of his word. I wonder if there is more surprising and scandalous statement in scriptures than what Paul says in Romans 4-5, that God justifies the ungodly. Though maligned in questions, the miracles themselves do not surprise us, 
as much as this statement when he says God justifies the ungodly. Everyone naturally assumes that God punishes bad people and he rewards good people. But Paul says something otherwise when he says God justifies the ungodly. How can God justify the ungodly? The letter to the Romans answers this question by carefully unpacking the love of God in Christ Jesus that accepts the unacceptable, that heals the brokenhearted, and justifies the ungodly. Now, in the passage that we just read, a famous one that I think many of us can hear echoes of in the New Testament, Isaiah is answering a similar question. In the previous section, Isaiah explained what the Lord has done in three double commands. First, the people are called to wake up, according to verse 17 of chapter 51, to the fact that the wrath of God is no more. Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people, we're told, behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink no more. Second, they are to wake up and realize their holiness in God, according to chapter 52, verse 1 and following. Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Finally, the invitation to divine blessings of departing from the land of bondage into a holy pilgrimage and Exodus in chapter 52, verse 11 and 12, when he says, depart, depart, go out from here. Touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Many of us are perhaps encouraged by these words, and I, I love that. The Lord will go before his people and will be their rear guard, is the promise. This comes on the heels of the Lord's declaration that you are my people and that your God reigns, he declared, reminding his people of his presence and his almighty power. But we are left to wonder, as Isaiah begins to explain, how can these gracious promises of God be for these people? How can the glory of God be present among people who deserve wrath and condemnation in reverse? In other words, how can God love them? And in turn, the question remains for us, how can God love us? As we begin our section in verse 13 of chapter 52, the answer is rather simple when he begins by saying, Behold, see my servant. Behold, see my servant. This is how Isaiah begins his fourth and final servant song. If you're reading carefully, there are five paragraphs here, three verses each, and its arrangement draws our attention to the heart of the message in verse, verses 4 through 6 in chapter 53. Together, they attempt to uh, uh, answer the, the, the question and the heart of the matter here in simply asking, how can God love these people? How can God perhaps love us? There are three brief answers given here. We can't justice, do justice to all the details, but simply, first, because of the faithfulness of the servant. 
We're told that the servant is faithful in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 52 and verses 10 through 12 of chapter 53, making the outline of this particular answer where the servant, according to verse 12, will be lifted. He will be high. He will be exalted. This is indeed astonishing given the surprising appearance of the servant. His appearance so marred Beyond human resemblance is what we're told. From such a person comes salvation that will shut the mouths of kings, give sight and understanding, and bring salvation to the nations. This inspired Paul, as you recall, when he finds his own ministry in the prophecy of the servant in Romans chapter 15. As he talks about his future plans, he simply says, Thus I make my ambition to preach the gospel. I make my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And Paul pivots here around the phrase, of him. In the quotation in Isaiah 52.15, the antecedent is the servant. Here in the writings of Paul, the antecedent is Jesus Christ, equating the servant with Christ. And Paul finds in this prophecy his own ministry predicted beforehand. This exaltation of the servant will happen actually through the dying of the servant, we're told. This was always intended. In 53, verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. But this does not end in eternal defeat or death, rather eternal triumph and life to those who are in him, for he shall see his offspring. Verse 11 then goes on to say, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The Lord sees and rewards the servant's faithfulness as he concludes by simply saying, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. How can God love these people? Because the servant was faithful. But it's not only that he's faithful. We're told it's also because of the sufferings of the servant. Chapter 53, verses 1 through 3, and verses 7 through 9 focus on the servant's suffering. For the nations respond to the servant with opposition, and even the people for whom he came reject him. As we often do, the servant was judged by the surface of things and appearance. It's how he looked that people paid attention to. The servant was not much to look at. In fact, the servant does not even attempt to impress others by his looks. As we are told, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him is the description. Not surprisingly, the servant was despised and rejected, being acquainted with sorrows and grief. His suffering, however, culminates in the greatest miscarriage of justice, we're told. Though he had done no violence, according to Isaiah, and there was no deceit in his mouth, the wicked triumphantly marched him to his grave. 
But this was not the result of his guilt, his weakness, or powerlessness. The servant willingly laid his life down. He chose to not open his mouth like a lamb before the slaughter and sheep before the shearing. He became like us. He became like us for us. So that as a result, we might become like him. As Paul says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. But his humiliation does not end there, as Paul goes on to explain. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Humiliating, scandalous, unbelievable, according to 1 Corinthians and Paul's explanation. No one in their right minds, were they to be asked about how God might save the world, would have thought of the servant of God, the son of God, hanging on a tree, death deserved for a slave, and those who are ostracized and outcast. Yet, he became like us, even worse, perhaps, for us, so that we can become like him. Here, God loves his people and can show his mercy to them, not only because of the faithfulness of the servant, but also because of his suffering. But the heart of this message finds itself in verses 4 through 6, because we're told that this faithful servant, this suffering servant, stood in our place. He substituted for us. The cultic language is found throughout the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the writing here in the prophecy. But at the heart of the song of the servant is the substitution of the servant. The servant was indeed oppressed and afflicted, but not of his own doing. He was despised and rejected by men, but not for himself. He indeed was a man of sorrows and intimately acquainted with grief, but they were not of his own. He certainly did not deserve them. It was for us, for you and me, for our transgressions and willful rebellions, he was pierced. For our iniquities and propensity to follow our fallen desires, he was crushed. For our sins, our sins, my guess is that at this seminary, you do not need explanation that you and I are sinful. That though the word is not common nor popular among this generation of Americans, this is something that we all recognize. And the guilt and pollution of sin residing and remaining we recognize. For our sins, our sins, he bore the punishment and the chastisement. For our brokenness, he was broken and wounded so that we might taste healing. In standing in our place, the servant turned away the wrath of God, brought us peace, and clothed us with his righteousness. This is exactly what Paul tries to convey. It's ironic, isn't it? This passage is actually cited in Acts chapter 8 when Philip approaches the Ethiopian eunuch and the eunuch asks him who this is that Isaiah refers to. And Philip explains that it's Jesus that Isaiah speaks of. 
The irony in all that is that at the beginning of that chapter 8 is the description of Saul persecuting the church without fully understanding the very book that he grew up with. But yet, it didn't take long for him to recognize what the truth was, as he reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. In 2 Corinthians 8.9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake Christ became poor, so that you by Christ's poverty, might become rich. How can God show mercy and love to these people, to you? Simply because Jesus was faithful. He suffered and he stood in our place for us. Friends, in days when we are busy, in days that we are overwhelmed, in days when we're fixated and focused on the work that's before us, we tend to jettison those things that are most important, and we tend to forget those things that are most fundamental. Indeed, it's a reminder to us that what Isaiah teaches us here and what Scripture reminds us is that this is who we are because of Jesus Christ. This is what we proclaim despite the unbelief of the world. This is where we hang our hope, for there is no other place and no one else. Thus Isaiah begins by saying, Behold the servant. Behold and see the servant. John Calvin, in commenting in this section, Here we have a beautiful contrast, he said. In ourselves we are scattered. In Christ we are gathered together. By nature we go astray and are driven headlong to destruction. In Christ, we find the course by which we are conducted to the harbor of salvation. Our sins are a heavy load, but they are laid on Christ by whom we are freed from the load. Thus, when we were ruined and being estranged from God, were hastening to hell, Christ took upon him the filthiness of our iniquities in order to rescue us from everlasting destruction. If you're overwhelmed, if you're tired, if you forget, may this be a reminder to you. Christ Jesus in whom we have hope, Christ Jesus whose name we exalt on high, Christ Jesus who gives us life and purpose in all that we do. Behold him this morning and the next days and weeks to come. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Lord, for the privilege that we have in coming together as brothers and sisters to hear your word being taught both in classes and in chapel in our gatherings, for the joy we have of laboring together as we dream about your kingdom work in the various churches where you have placed us, for the joy that we have as your sons and daughters recognizing the purpose in all that we do coming from you and that the message we proclaim is about you. All these things we give you thanks. Lord, as we head into the busy season of our year 
as, especially for our semester, oftentimes we forget the fundamentals, even as we busy ourselves reading the word and studying it. We ask that by your spirit, O Lord, you remind us that every day we may behold your grace in our lives and the grace that you have poured upon us in Christ Jesus may encourage, strengthen, challenge, and motivate us in our service to you. For we pray these things in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California, 2019. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.